Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Tom, let's just pretend you were single for a minute. Sure. sure. How many dates would you give somebody before you decide, no, they're not for me? Ah, gee, that's an interesting question. It's one of those ones, right, where, like, obviously if someone's giving you major red flags on the first date, you're out. That's it. Yes. But if they're just fine but there's mm. no zing, do you give them a few dates or do you just go, no, there's no zing, I don't like it? I, th- I think the... A, the curiosity in me and B, the sort of, I don't know, I don't want to, a natural feeling of not wanting to like let them down or like disappoint them. I think you go, I I would go fishing for a few more dates, looking for that thing, looking for that, that connectivity um, or that spark or that common interest, that common ground. Uh, but you're right. There are certain behaviours which, after one date, you go, "No, get out of here!" Absolutely not. Bricks. Huge um, red flag. Yeah. So uh, I am colour blind, but uh, can still see the colour red. Yes. Um, yes. Gee, I don't know. What do you? What's your instinct? What do you? Where do you I usually will at least give them a second date, and yeah. if I'm still feeling absolutely nothing from the second date, then that's probably time to. But if if there's if on paper we rake like a lot of sense, I'd probably give them a third. Hmm, curious. But I've had a friend recently who started dating somebody, and she was seriously not keen. Mm. But like, and uh, but uh, she was keen, but she wasn't like zinging all over the place, and then. She was convinced, like I talked to her about it. She went on a few more dates and a few more dates and all of a sudden they're ridiculously in love, even though it was a bit. So how long do you wait for sparks? Is that the question? Is it an instantaneous thing? I want to know, guys. Go to our Ghost of Boyfriends Past Group Therapy group and tell me how long you give Mm. somebody if if it's just a little bit beige, but you can see potential on paper. Or did sparks fly out of seemingly nowhere? There might have been an, an initial meeting where there was nothing, but then down the line, all of a sudden, hang on, we're zipping, we're crackling, it's all happening. Wow. Yeah. Good question, Liz. But yes, please, readers, let us know. And hello one, hello all. Welcome to Ghosts of Boyfriends Past. I'm Liz Best. And I'm Tom Harris. And today's a main episode, which means joining us today, we have a guest. She is the host of the Sober Awkward podcast. Joining us from the Sunshine Coast over Zoom, we have Victoria Vanstone. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, right off the top, I want to hear more about your podcast. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast Mm. and what you do? So I would describe myself as a sort of professional party pooper. I, <laughs> I was a huge binge drinker all my life, never saw outside of my boozy bubble. And about four, five, four or five years ago, I gave up alcohol. And I talk about on my podcast what it's like being an ex-party girl, navigating this, this world without booze, basically. Um, it's a comedy podcast that I do with my mate Lucy, and we've got a new host coming on starting tomorrow. And it's about being sober curious and identifying yourself without alcohol in your system. Like once the ethanol's burnt off your skin, what is left <laughs> over and is that okay? 
And also, I just wanted to add, I was just listening to your intro very quickly. I wanted to say about my spark took 17 years for me and my husband. Yes, I met my husband at university and he was a total dork. And I used to ignore him (laughs) in the hallways of our university. He used to wear these horrible jumpers and had like his hairy chest coming out of the top. It was gross. And I used to ignore him. But I met him 17 years later and I got the spark straight away and we were wow. engaged within six weeks. So, yeah, it can take 17 years wow. for that spark. The spark has, is dazed a little bit now. It's dampened <laughs> after three kids and 10 years of marriage. But occasionally there's the odd sparkle that reappears every now and again. See, that's what I think. I think sometimes when you go out with the intention of dating someone, you immediately are like, yes, date or no date. But if they're just incidentally in your life mm. over a period of time, then you don't have to decide with the pressure of dating and then a spark may appear. Yeah, totally. And lust is very short lived. I mean, if anybody knows who's married and have children, you can't rely on that <laughs> as something that's going to uh, prop up your marriage for the rest of your life. It has to be a sort of decision to spend your life together rather than a decision to be all romantic and in love all the time. It's a very different situation, isn't it's it? It's exhausting being romantic it's- and in love all the time. Yeah, I've got it. time. Yeah, I've got no time for that rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, spotted Victoria in a podcast support group. I see it was a support group a podcasters group um and I thought it would be really fascinating having had a little bit of a listen to the podcast to kind of talk about some of her pre-sober dating times because she is now happily married um and kind of what what you learned from being a party girl in the party scene on the dating scene and then jumping into soberdom and marriage Well, for me, the word dating is kind of a bit skewed. I was never really a a dater as such. I don't know whether pointing out someone on a dance floor and then lassoing them and sort of dragging them in your direction. I'm not sure whether that would be considered dating. So mine was kind of a more of a last man standing rendezvous where I'd sort of pick someone out and go, come on, are you coming home with me? I did have a few dates in my past that that if they weren't drinking, it was always about the alcohol for me. It was whether I was able to get someone to join in my party. And if they liked that party, they were kind of in my gang Mm. because I grew up in an environment where um, my parents were big partiers. Alcohol was part of that sort of cheerful pandemonium that they created in our house. So any sort of romance or love that I saw, it was always topped up by some cheap sparkling wine or a couple of shots at the bar. So I thought that's how people dated. I didn't know there was another way of dating or another way of being, in fact, because it was so ingrained in my culture and in my being that dating and alcohol came together as a nice tied up package, which is now looking back, of course, I realise is totally the wrong way to go about things because I never really had a successful relationship and ended up in all sorts of risky situations because booze was so part of it. Now, are you willing to share any of those particular stories or risky situations with us? Well, one of my most serious risky ones, which I'm happy to tell you about, I mean, I'm happy to talk about anything because as far as I'm concerned, the stories of others, you know, navigate the bigger picture. And I want to let people know about how alcohol affects you and your decision making. And for me, my decision making was very, very poor for most of my life until I gave up drinking. Um, So some situations, for example, I was backpacking in Australia and I 
um, had my drink spiked. I was very unconscious of of the people that were surrounding me most of the time because I was so over inebriated that I I had no understanding. All I knew about was when's the next tune coming on, who's buying me a drink. Mm. So I never, if someone handed me a drink, of course I took it and got it down the hatch as quickly as I could. But I remember this one night suddenly just having a couple of glasses of wine around a campfire. And the next thing I knew was my friends dragging me off some guy um, who walked me down the beach and was lying on top of me. Now, the thing is with alcohol and consent, it's a very, very fuzzy line, isn't it? So Mm. I don't know what the situation was and I can't tell you what happened. But all I know is that I was safe and there was a, a momentary time there where my friends saved me and dragged me off home and said, right, this is what happened. And I woke up the next day with no recollection. They had to carry me in it like a fireman's hold over the shoulder because my body was completely floppy. And that's the repercussions of over drinking um, on a dating or even just out when you're out with mates and you're looking for a one night stand. All of those situations can be so risky there are so many times where I abandoned my body um, and didn't care about myself especially involving men and promiscuity that I I look back and think gosh why didn't I care about myself enough to to know that that was wrong Um, Mm. and that was because my brain was was sloshed I was you know it caused a chemical imbalance in my head having overdrunk every time I went out and it made my beer goggles very, very steamy. And I would literally go for any man that was interested in me. <laughs> so it was never really my choice, I realize now. There were so many horrible dating situations. I remember being in Barcelona and meeting this really gorgeous looking um, Canadian guy with like blonde hair and fierce blue eyes and thinking, oh, my God, this guy is so gorgeous. And I was sober. And then, of course, we went out and got drunk all day. And I remember climbing up into the um, top bunk of our bed at the backpackers hostel. He was staying in (laughs) and I had sex with him and he had his arms down by his side and wiggled around on top of me like a dead goldfish. Oh, no. no. (laughs) So all sorts of horrible things like that where I came away feeling full of shame and like, oh, gosh, actually, that was a really horrible situation. It went from me being, oh, this guy's lovely and having a lovely date with him and it all being, you know, very pleasant and having nice conversations to a few drinks in it just me being like being bonked on, you know, with a room full of people on top of a, yeah, like with (laughs) no care about what was going on and having to sneak down that ladder afterwards, feeling full of regret and embarrassment and having to, to run away. But I think that's what generally I did throughout my life and my dating scene was to, to make a fool out of myself and get myself in a humiliating situation and run away from it afterwards, which is generally, I mean, what a lot of people do after a kind of a big boozy session, you know, I traveled the world and if I did sleep with someone or date someone, if I didn't like them, I could then pack up my backpack and piss off to the next country, which Mm. I did a lot. Yeah. And so when you get yourself into situations like that, I think it's important to kind of realize that people are taking advantage of the drunk person as well. It's not always, it's not you Mm. making terrible decisions because other people, I just needed to point out that other people like consent has to be a fuck yes. Otherwise it's a no. Definitely. Yeah. There needs to be that conversation, especially when alcohol is involved. I mean, it's very, very, it's very, very dangerous ground, isn't it? Because, you know, each person is inebriated, but of course, 
you're always the victim if, if someone's taking advantage of you. And I think I probably was taken off. I think I was taken advantage of a lot because people could see that I was totally wasted. So therefore, I wasn't in control of my faculties so much. It's a very important discussion. There's an incredible um, series on Stan at the moment, which is um, I Will Destroy You. And it's about exactly what we're talking about now. I highly recommend it about you know, there's the, the situation if men take off a condom, for example, while having sex with someone mm. and not telling them. There's all of these different levels of consent and what's right and what's wrong. It's a really fantastic series if, ever, if anyone's interested in that. I highly recommend it. Great. And it, consent changes as well. Yes. It, consent can change in a, in a, in a night. Uh, it's just, you can start with a yes, but then change your mind, say no. But when, when, two people, when you're both inebriated or one is more than the other, yeah, yeah. It, it's a murky, it is a murky pond to, uh, that we have to, uh, we have to shift, shift through. Um, I'd like to know maybe towards the end, Victoria, how you get with asking, how, how you respond to people asking you why you don't drink anymore because i've quit drinking as well recently and oh. responding uh, the amount of people that take issue with why only, you don't drink it's, it's the, the only drug that people are cranky at you for not yeah why don't having? you why don't you why don't you smoke why don't you take heroin like it, it's yeah. just a yeah. weird, yeah. weird weird thing people get I've got to the point now with my sobriety five years in where if people want to ask me that question, I I just instantly know it's a reflection of their own behavior. Mm. Looking at me is like looking in a mirror of everything you're doing, perhaps that you know inside subliminally that you know you're doing wrong. So if people nudge me a little bit, though, and poke the finger and say, you're boring, you're this, come on, have one. I have a, a very sort of easy answer for them which is you know it's none of your business what I put into yeah. my body and yeah. what I do with my body in any of these situations really it's my choice and it's my body and it's none of your business I wouldn't say it in such a kind of blunt way but that's the truth about it and as you say you wouldn't have a go at someone for stopping heroin or, yeah, or right. stopping their meth problem you just be like give them a pat on the back and say well done mate and there needs to be more of that and that's why I, why I do everything I do is because I'm trying to say look that Alcohol is so normalized in our society, in dating, in motherhood, in, in our work environments and our careers. It's so normalized and expected of us. Whereas, in fact, it's causing loads of anxiety, mental health issues, yep. physical health issues. The impact of alcohol on, on society is absolutely massive. Um, but we just ignore it and get another round in. So I just think talking about it as we are today and and addressing it in different realms I think is so important especially when it comes to promiscuity and one night stands I think people think they're doing something that they want to do and perhaps they're not obviously a date when you're not totally hammered and you're sitting there looking you know feeling happy and feeling good you're going to be able to make a better judgment of the person you're with when I was, uh, you know, under the influence, I was making terrible choices. I remember waking up with, you know, all sorts of strange people, a backpacker's dad or a guy with wooden teeth or, you know, all of these <laughs> terrible, terrible experiences I had, you know, traveling the world as I did. Um, and they often led to very, very toxic relationships as well, because I made poor decisions, which led to long term repercussions. So I had very short term lifestyle choices that led to me being in proper relationships with people that weren't compatible with me, which was really, really annoying because it often took two years for me to realize that they were a complete psychopath. And that was because I'd made poor decisions when under the influence. So it has impact everywhere in our lives. 
At what point, so let's just say you've gone on a one-night stand with somebody, you've woken up, and then you end up in one of those relationships. At what Hmm. point do you realize that it's not right for you or are you still picking up the bottle to make it right for you? Exactly. That's exactly what I did. I went out with people and if it wasn't working, I drank through it. So I made, and that happens with a lot of relationships and it can be very difficult for people when they stop drinking, when their partner is still drinking, because then they find out, of course, that's the only thing they have in common. That's the Mm -hmm. only fun they have. And that's the way that they, they communicate with each other, which involves alcohol. So of course I drank through those relationships, you know, I got drunk with them and I sort of numbed out the fact that nothing was working, that the spark wasn't there when we were sober because, because I'd got onto these relationships probably with a real self-esteem issue. The reason I drank in the first place, I think, was because I've always been a real people pleaser and always wanted people to like me um, due to a bullying situation at school. I always wanted people to stay. I always wanted people to you know, like me. So therefore, I had to put on a performance for everybody and be the life and soul of the party. And that was a huge responsibility for me. And the same, it was the same with men. If, if they liked me, that was enough. So therefore, my low self-esteem was getting a nice hit of mm. adrenaline. And I'd be like, right, oh, this guy likes me. I'm going to reward this guy liking me by having sex with him. I know that sounds really basic. And, and that wasn't the thought process. But when I look back at it now, I realized that's what I was doing. And that is so toxic. But socially, we're conditioned, like as as speaking as a woman, socially, a lot of people, you know, do say that, you know, if someone takes you out to dinner, you owe them sex. Or if someone does something nice to you, you owe them sex. I, I think that that's actually a really dangerous social standard. And then if you add alcohol into the mix, it just mm. it just messes it up in a completely murky way. Um, totally, yeah. So can I ask, what are some of the, are there some stories that you look back on, you go, look, it was not great at the time, but right now it's quite funny. Well, my favorite one is my friend. It's not me. It's my mate. She'll kill me. (laughs) She, we would, we used to go on those holidays in Crete in England. You go to, you know, it's like an Ibiza holiday, like a rave up where you just sleep with as many men as you can. You have notches on your bedpost, all having competitions to see who can get the most snogs in. And of course you're getting free shots at all the bars along Mm. the, all women, this is pretty fucked up, but all women get free shots at every bar you go to. Oh geez. Yeah. So that happens in a lot of those resorts in Europe. And one of my mates went missing one night. And when we found her the next morning, she was sprawled out on the bed like a, you know, it's funny now, but it's it's actually wrong. (laughs) She was kind of like spread eagled on the bed, like a dead starfish. And we were like, oh my God, there's something sticking out of her bottom. And when we went over to collect it, there was, the guy had left his business card between her butt cheeks. Oh, (laughs) yes. Oh, that's foul. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. We're all laughing. We're all laughing. We're all laughing. Yeah, we plucked it out. We wondered whether he swiped it, actually. Yeah, that's right. Well, like a a Visa card, yeah. Tip and pin, yeah, that's right. Yeah, could have been a bank card. He should have left a tip. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was all sorts of situations that I got myself into. You know, I, I had lots of boyfriends and one night stands that just weren't suitable because I was hammered. You know, we used to go on these skiing holidays in France and you always tried to get off with the, um, with the ski instructor and ended up like having to be so embarrassed the next day because you'd done all these awful things, you know, because when you're drunk as well, you don't have sex like a normal person. No, you have sex <laughs> like an absolute lunatic, like hanging <laughs> off the, hanging off the rafters and swinging on the, on the lampshades. 
and scratches on your back and you wake up just going, oh, God, what was I doing? That's not what I am. Like, that's not how you have sex when you're a non-drinker. So it always used to be so embarrassing. And I, I really spent 25 of my li- years of my life full of shame and regret because I was not the person that I am now. I was acting like an absolute loon most of the time. So what is the point that you reach in your life where you go, I'm not going to do this anymore? Kids, I think, having kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I drank heavily, probably binge drinking. So with this world of alcohol, there's this huge spectrum now that we're starting to recognise this grey area drinking, and I call it my kind of Pinot Gris purgatory. It was a place where I got stuck because my drinking wasn't extreme enough for me to, I didn't think, to deserve professional support. I yes, mean, I wasn't yeah. passed out on my bedroom floor, covered in sick with a baby crawling over me. I was just someone who suffered from anxiety when I drank. I started to get panic attacks after having my first child because I was lying in bed with a terrible hangover and having to listen to my husband husband go out for the day with the kids Um, and of course that led to guilt shame and anxiety so I wasn't one of those people where you think of that word alcoholic and you jump straight to that negative image of what that is Mm. like someone passed out on a bench with a bottle of Jack Daniels so we're starting to recognize this vast spectrum of alcoholism now and I recognize then at that point that I sat on it somewhere and that it was okay for me to need help even though I felt like I wasn't perhaps an alcoholic I identify now as being a sober curious woman or a socially acceptable binge drinker or a socially acceptable alcoholic because I was the sort of person you you know you cheered as I got another round you laughed as I did bad robot dancing and you know did the worm across the dance floor I'm a very very normal drinker but I think the word normal drinker has strange connotations because even normal drinkers are waking up with huge anxiety ridden hangovers on a Sunday. Mm. So it's great now that we're recognizing this place between the pub and an AA meeting and that we can understand that drinking is having huge impact on our health and mental health. And perhaps it's time to question it and investigating it for all of the reasons we're talking about today. I think there needs to be definitely um, more acknowledgement of the fact that you don't have to be rock bottom broken to get help. And I think it's really great that you're able to, you know, we can start talking about and addressing this middle ground because there's so many people and whether it be, you know, drinking or mental health problems or anything like that, where people go, oh yeah, it's a bit not great, but I'm not that, which means I don't need help. But Mm. I mean, even when I'm feeling my best, I still go to the psychologist because I want to be better. So I think you know, it's just that realizing, isn't it, Victoria, that things aren't exactly the way you want them to be and striving to make them different, I guess. And exactly. I, I had not become the mum that I wanted to be. I, I hoped to combine my party lifestyle and motherhood. And those two worlds actually sort of collided. And it's at that point where I decided to reach out and get therapy for to mm. understand my my relationship with alcohol I went in there thinking oh I'll probably continue drinking and I'll work out how to moderate but for people like me moderation is a myth I have one and then I'm ordering the bottle it's as simple as that there's no other way because of how I've grown up and and how my brain is wired I just need to numb out that's how I drink and for people like me it's hard to understand that that you have a problem. And that was when my sobriety opened up for me. It was going to therapy and a lady asking me, you know, why are you here? And I was like, oh, I'm here. I'm just a mom. I've got a little bit of a binge drinking problem. And, and she said, what do you mean? I was like, 
oh, I have a drink problem. Mm. Drinking is causing me to be unwell and I'm here at a therapist. Therefore, I have a problem. And identifying that problem is really the key to that sobriety door. And it opens up a whole new world where you begin to understand yourself. And there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better. And I was really shocked to find out um, that humans can evolve in this world. I didn't know that I was capable of change or capable of, of being different than I have been my entire life. And that's what I am now. And it's bloody brilliant. And, you know, I really recommend to anybody who's ever woken up with a hangover and then been waving a, a you know, a tenor at the barman by the Thursday night at happy hour. If you're questioning on that hangover and saying, God, you know, what's wrong with me? There is, it is worth investigation and you are worthy of professional support. And because that's what people feel like. They say, oh, it's just a tinsy wincy booze problem, but I'll just, you know, go out on Saturday and do it all over again. And that's okay. But if you're questioning it, it means that you want to be kinder to yourself and that you want to change. And that is worthy of some sort of intervention. Here, here. That's so important, Victoria. Um, I was wondering... How do you notice or do you notice differences in your sober relationships now uh, compare, and how they compare to your, your boozy, uh, boozy days in the past? Well, I think that um, myth of like we're all like, making lovely friendships and, you know, bonding when we're having a few wines, I think it's total bullshit, quite yes, honestly. Yes, I, I agree with that. <laughs> I realise now that none of my friendships were authentic because probably because I wasn't authentic. I was just kind of this dribbling mess that was getting the next round in. I was never really present or conscious. I was un- unconscious yes, most sure. of the time, <laughs> like a, a taxi rank in Peckham. But I generally find now the people that want to stay stay and the ones that understand are here the ones that don't they sort of do sort of trickle away down the drain but that's okay I find my friendships are real now and I can have you know I can walk away from a social event without shame and regret and embarrassment I know I haven't puked in the bathroom or you know done something awful and knocked over a tray of grasses or whatever whatever I used to do I come away from each social situation with my head held high now which was before I was kind of you know with my hoodie on hung over ordering a pizza mm-hmm. so things have changed dramatically for me I'm I'm much more confident I'm much more happy I don't suffer from anxiety anymore I don't worry about the opinions of others which is huge mm-hmm. because I was such a big people pleaser the opinions of others really don't affect me anymore. Um, and that's a huge change for me. Can I ask if the uh, the drink problem as well as the soberness, what effect that had on your marriage? Luckily, I married a man who accepted me. For me, it was the first person that I'd ever met who didn't want the booze mask, the girl, the party girl. Mm. He was never a big party. I mean, we drank together at the beginning of our marriage and then we had kids quite quickly. So I was confronted with my drink problem quite early on in our marriage. And I'm just lucky that I married someone who is understanding. And instead of ever judging me or telling me to slow down, I used to look at his worried face, you know, when we were down the pub and he was like, it's time to go. Mm. And I'd be like, right, I'm staying for another while. And I could see this look of concern. And that was one of the reasons I gave up. I don't want to make my husband worried mm. about me. And his face has changed now from concern to pride. And he is so supportive of everything I do. He has never, ever judged me. All he's done is walk alongside me as I made the changes that I had to change, which has been wonderful. And he's onto the alcohol-free beers now, which is good as well. Lovely. And do you think that that's deepened your connection um, since you've decided to give up the alcohol as well? 
Probably, but the sex isn't as exciting. <laughs> well, we're not all swinging off chandeliers <laughs> under the booze fog anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I bet you're finding less kebabs in your bed sheets now. With yeah. less, less business wood, cards in yeah, your butt less, cheeks. <laughs> yeah, I used to find a, a Savaloy sausage in my top yep, pocket. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> that is the perfect place to keep one of those. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely lovely. So look, now at this time of the podcast, normally what we do is we talk about what we've learned. And I feel like we've gone through a lot of that already. But can I ask, what are some of the overarching lessons that you've learned from, you know, realizing that you had a drinking problem to your journey towards sobriety? I think is what we touched on a minute ago is look that everybody is deserving of help, whether it's you saying to your doctor, I think I might have a problem or you're saying to your best mate, look, I don't really feel like drinking tonight and I need you to support me. I think learning to put yourself out there, which is, you know, everything I do is putting my story out there to sort of highlight this larger narrative about alcohol in our society and to know that it's okay to say, no, I don't want to drink tonight. The more people that start saying that, the more it's going to open up different ways of us socializing and interacting as humans and in ways that are much more satisfying and fulfilling and more loving. Something that happens in sobriety is that you become more conscious of, of your surroundings. And it sounds ridiculous, but you become a little bit more of a tree hugger <laughs> and you, you want everyone to be happy and you can feel in your heart the joys of the world, the simple things. It, it does come down to the simple things. You, you know, your children look giggling in the morning as you tickle them or having a nice cup of tea before bed. And that's something I've learned that joy doesn't have to be chaotic. It can just be peace. And often people say, oh, sober, aren't you boring? Aren't you boring? Well, I think it's a matter of redefining what boring is. For me, boring now is just being at peace and not having the chaos, not having that awful feeling of waking up, you know, the fear of the unknown. What did I do last night? Where was I? Who was I with? All of that awful stuff coming up in your gut with those waves of anxiety crashing over your soul. You give that up and you replace it with what some people might find boring if you are still drinking. But for sober people, you'll ask them, you'll say, well, boring for me is just, you know, it's going for a walk, looking at the ocean, watching the sunrise and just feeling like a, you know, a, a functional citizen of this earth, which I wasn't for many, many years. Yeah. T- Tom, what have you learned this episode? Uh, not f- specifically from this episode, but this episode br- uh, brings up my point wonderfully as a, uh, like Victoria, I used to drink as well. Um, and what irks me about the Western, it could you could point to England or you could point to Australia here, but it's, it seems to be a Western thing. We can't go to the, we have no culture of going to the pub and having one drink, it seems to me. Uh, we, go, we go to the pub and we have six pints and then the Sambucas come out and then we're all falling about. It's just for a, for a, for a country or countries that love booze, that love have a big, strong booze culture. We just, we're not very mature with it. We all get, mm-hmm. as soon as we're at the pub, we're all excited whoo, and time to get silly drunk and fall out in the street covered in sick and, and piss. Um, so <laughs> a little bit of, a little bit of, I don't know, just a bit calm down, lads. We, Chill. We've got, I guess we've got access yeah. to booze. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Great. But I don't know what's, why can't we go to the pub for one, one pint after work and then go home? I don't know. Instead of, instead of 10. Um, also, uh, the disappointed look on someone's face that you care about 
yeah, that can, that can, uh, that that's can, smarts. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah. So uh, keep that in the back of your mind going forward, everybody. I think my lesson from this week is that um, if you are someone who drinks, and it doesn't mean whether you have a problem with it or not, but do make sure that you go out with friends because in situations like Victoria found herself mm. in, if her friend hadn't have been there that time, then who knows what would have happened. So I think regardless of wherever anybody is in their sobriety journey, um, it's important to look after your friends on nights out and make sure that there are some people that maybe aren't drinking as much so that you guys don't put yourselves in terrible situations. And also just remember, like drinking can be fun, but your judgment is impaired. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to advise don't go with people to a second location, but sometimes that's a really bad idea. So just mm. make mm. sure that you know that with every drink you take, your judgment is becoming slightly more impaired. So have people around you that can be your little like guardian angel friends and, and support you in those situations. Look, Victoria, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. It's been marvelously enlightening, and I'm really happy that we're helping spread the message about, you know, the the terrible choices that you can make when you're just committed to being a party person. Um, tell us a little bit more about what kind of you discuss on your podcast so that our guests can come and chat or listen to some episodes and, and if they want to hear more from you. Yeah, we discuss everything from what it is to be a sober, curious human to, you know, first dates, exactly what we're talking about, how it affects you financially, just everything, how impact, how alcohol impacts your life and your choices. But we do it in a comedic way. So we're not just preaching. We don't want to preach, preach to no. people. We just want people to understand how alcohol affects your life and your relationships and your business and so we go at it from any angle pretty much you know there's so many interesting facets to this topic it, it affects everything so we never seem to run out of of terrible a terrible shame shed of episodes <laughs> there's always like a story yeah we're quite similar in that way like everybody's always always had terrible experiences in dating and I'm pretty sure that everybody will always have terrible experiences with alcohol so between the two of our podcasts we're never running out of content ever no, no never it's still happening now I mean I, I still make a tit out of myself sometimes there's always a story to be had <laughs> and that's the thing even if you have the worst date in the world it's the story afterwards. Like you can call up your friends, Liz and Tom, and you can say, I had this terrible yeah. date and it felt <laughs> awful, but yeah, I want totally. to talk about it so that we can absolutely start crying, laughing about it instead of just crying, crying. Yes, about that's it. right. There's always a story. Um, and we thank Victoria for coming on and talking about her history today. Um, if you have a story, uh, to join us as a main guest like Victoria has today or to be featured on a, on a quickie, send it through to ghostsofboyfriendspast at gmail.com. Please check your junk mail, though, because sometimes we try and get back to you and it's not us, it's you. It's Google, actually. It's Google. Rude. It's a third party ruining Rude. everything. Um, but if you'd like to be on one of our main episodes, you can go to thatsnotcanon.com forward slash ghosts of boyfriends past. Victoria, if you've got any mates, feel free to tell them to come on to the podcast. We will pop all of the links to Victoria's podcast for the sober awkward podcast we'll drop any links that you want us to drop in there so send those through to us victoria and we'll make sure that they get to all of our listeners in the meantime i have been liz best here with and tom harris uh, date well yeah why do you drink yeah.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There are known knowns known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. But there are also unknown knowns. The ancient and esoteric order of the Jackalope is a secret society devoted to unearthing and sharing this forgotten knowledge. Each episode, we take one of these strange stories and share it with you. No topic is off-limits, except for the obvious. Available wherever fine podcasts are sold.